Welcome to The Age of Trust, a special podcast series brought to you by Verizon that explores how we are securing our future for the fourth industrial revolution, with knowledge becoming critical to Australia's international economic strength. This podcast series explores themes that challenge the productivity of knowledge workers with secure and reliable communications. We discover the explosion in remote working and connectivity and how organizations will need to manage, secure, protect and organize intangible assets such as systems, processes, IP, data, personal information, corporate information and even competitive knowledge. Get ready for the new age of trust by Verizon. Welcome to the Age of Trust podcast. Today is the last in our series of eight discussions. We're joined by Rob Labusk, Vice President Asia Pacific for Verizon Business Group, and Sam Kath, Samaya Ryan, who's the President, Global Enterprise Verizon Business Group. Today was a great opportunity to recap on 2020 and look forward to what 2021 and the years to follow will bring when it comes to new technology. We're looking at what digital transformation actually means and what organisations need to do to prepare for the advance of technologies like 5G that look like they are actually becoming a reality. But to make all of this work, it's about people and culture and energy and ambition and really having the skills there to make sure that all of this promise becomes a reality for businesses. I'd like to say welcome to both Rob and Sampath. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start, Sampath, if you don't mind. I, I did notice on your, your bio and your LinkedIn that you moved across to a Verizon business role from Verizon Media in February 2020, which in hindsight is very interesting timing. Keep your observations on what it's like coming from the Verizon Media side of the business to applying that experience into a very quickly changing business environment. Yeah, you know, Verizon Media is an interesting asset. It's, it's a $9 billion revenue asset which is made up of the old AOL business, the Yahoo business, the Huffington Post business, and a very large digital media service business. And it's doing quite well. And what was interesting is as I moved during the pandemic, I have never met my colleagues. Like Rob and I work very closely, but I've never actually met him. So I've literally had a virtual onboarding onto this business, which is strange in itself. One of the interesting things that the media business is going through right now is two things. One is privacy. Because the business of media is to make money off privacy. And then we hit this straight against the privacy concerns that people have. So that's one interesting theme that's going on. The second one is scaled media. For example, Verizon, we probably punch through 30% of the world's internet passes through our pipes. And because of that, we get some very interesting insights on cybersecurity, cyber risk, way before other people get to see it. So as I moved from the media business to run our global enterprise business, those are a couple of things that you took over. Did you see as well the way that, and Rob, I'll ask you this as well, there might have been more of a, we've always talked about, you know, consumerization of work or that we're becoming much more kind of consumers of technology in the way that we like to interface with it. I guess that would have ramped up this year. Would, would that be fair? Yeah, very much so. And, you know, what's interesting in the media as consumerization happens is people say, I can search the whole internet, you know, at the Yahoo search engine for pretty much any content that was ever put out in 0.2 seconds. Why does it take me three days to find something within my own company? So that becomes an interesting point that uh, creates expectations for employees where CIOs have no choice but to digitize and digitally enable their companies. 
Another one is, hey, the apps that we use, you know, either desktop apps or the consumer apps we use on our phones are so cool, so slick. But then when I start using my enterprise apps, they look like they were from the Stone Age. So you have some interesting trends where enterprises are actually behind the consumer business on adapting and using technology. So enterprises have to catch up to this very, very quickly. And that's what you're seeing right now. Look, COVID has in a weird way helped. You know, I think it was Lenin, who I'm not a big fan of, who said, you know, there are decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks when decades happen. This feels like weeks when decades have happened as far as digitalization and uh, digitally enabling companies and enterprises. Yeah. Rob, I'm keen to ask you the same and adding government into the mix. Have you seen a similar sort of shift? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we undoubtedly, when we look back on 2020, it'll be known as the year of the rise of the remote worker across much of the globe. I think that's kind of the orientation that we came into the year with, and we've all experienced that. As we exit the year, I think to Sam Pat's point, we're exiting under the auspices of digital first everything. We've seen organizations and markets that have been very traditional very binary, very non-digital in the way that they've constructed their business models, rapidly accelerating to digital-first agendas. And this idea of digital-first decision-making has escalated all the way to the board level. And indeed, it's not just in enterprises, it's also in government. You know, We've seen the Australian government here have to rapidly accelerate digitization of their workforce, of the way that they serve the citizenry to care for the very unique circumstances that we've all experienced this year. So I think it's been a really interesting dynamic. Things have happened very quickly. That's created great opportunity, but also some risk. And they're one of the things that many organizations will have to deal with as we go into 21. I think that's a nice departure to, I guess, the subject of the day in our sector, which is 5G. Sam Path, I read something that said recently, say that we're really not talking about adding a 5G layer to existing business practices. It's not just a plus one. It takes a rethink. And I guess that goes to Rob's point around digital first. It's not just a simple... So when we talk about digital transformation, what are the features of really doing the rethink to make sure that um, people are prepared to implement 5G in a meaningful way? Yeah, Corey, it's interesting. You know, 4G was 3G plus one. You know, 3G was 2G plus one. 5G is not 4G plus one. You know, it's not... A lot of people think 5G is 4G, but faster. Not at all. We've got some new capabilities and we call them currencies with 5G that didn't exist before. Latency, security that's built in, device density, really, really low power requirements. So we've opened up the innovation framework to these new currencies. Now, nobody knew that Netflix, Uber, Airbnb were going to come when 4G was launched. But we are in a similar place with 5G. We all have strong conviction on what the three or four big areas of growth are. But if someone asks me, what's the killer app in 2022 or 23, I'm going to wing it. But there are two or three things that are important as companies think of digital. Digital is not web enabling your current businesses and processes. Most people think that, oh, let's take what we have and put in a web interface and yo, yo, it's digital. Digital is how can you make it all about the experience? How can you go down to the underlying process and clean those processes up so that it can be actually digitally enabled? You know, it's a little bit like going to the DMV. In America, we go to the DMV, which is where you get your licenses. You know, they're known for being very, very non-digital. Taking that process and making it digital will still make it a bad process. So how do you fundamentally change your underlying processes and policies to get there? Now, why do I talk about policies? Most processes tend to be 
Garpy, primarily because of policies that were set in place 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So as we move to digital, we have to go back and clean up those underlying processes and policies to make them ready to take advantage of what 5G or even 4G has to offer. Rob, how prepared are businesses to be able to think like that, to plan like that? Where are we at? It's a very broad spectrum. But Sampath is absolutely right. Fundamentally, it's a changed customer experience. And when you change the experience with your customer, you undoubtedly then change the relationship that you have with your customer. You change it either for the better or for the worse. And we've seen some very high-profile examples of digitization gone wrong right here in Australia, where the complexity of technology and in some cases, the fluidity of data have created this opacity where regulations have been breached, where financial institutions have come undone around the money laundering stipulations here in Australia, as an example. So it's a highly complex set of parameters that you need to try and unlock and understand. And I think to Sampath's point, the first step that any organisation has to take is to understand what defines their customer experience today. Because if you don't understand that, like the DMV example, if you don't have a full understanding of what that process is and and what that customer experience is today, if you just do a lift and shift onto a software platform and a digital experience but don't change that actual process itself, then you're at risk of alienating those customers and changing that customer experience for the worse. So I think in reflection on 2020, we've seen many organizations grappling with this and we've seen many experiments the key for companies across the board will be to take a moment to pause and reflect on what's happened this year, not only within their organisation, but within their industry, their competitors, their peers, their partners, and start to very deliberately and thoughtfully analyse what they saw that worked and what was successful, either in their own shop or someone else's, and then start to craft their strategies going forward based on those observations. And that brings the point around proof of concept and where we are looking forward in Australia and the wider region, but also in the US and other parts of the world. Sampath, with proof of concepts, how do we know when we're talking about wholesale change? Now, what are the learnings that people are seeing early that they're having to address to make sure that when they do scale, that they're on the right track? Yeah, it's a good one. You know, but proof of concepts are quite interesting. By definition, 90% of them don't work. So I think the lesson is in the ones that don't work as opposed to the ones that work. And just having done this prior to this role or prior to my media role, I was a chief product officer for all of Horizon. So you know I had product engineering, product development for the whole group. And one of the things you look for in proof of concepts is what has to be true for this to work. And when you list those out very clearly, you get a very good sense for what you're trying to do. And invariably, it comes down to is the technology ready? Is the infrastructure ready? Is the economic business model ready? And then the last one is what customer behavior do you need to change? And those are the kind of the four big metrics you want to play with in a proof of concept to see it. And that's where things either work or not. A lot of times we get everything right, but we forget about the customer behavior change that's needed to happen. And in that comes the value. Second thing in proof of concept is you got to do it fast. A lot of times we over-engineer proof of concepts. And we spend a lot of time doing it because by definition, nine out of 10 won't work. So a little bit of it is a numbers game. You got to go and have at many ad bats to do it. So the way we like to do it is do many of them and very quickly figure out something's going to fail or not fail and then drop it and move on to the next one. But that's how you look for patterns and what's going to work. 
Second thing, look, in 5G, if we don't use at least two or three of these currencies in 5G, Kari, uh, you're not going to get the full value of it. Again, to recap, what are the currencies? Speed, latency, device density, power consumption. If you just use one of them, you can find other cheaper ways to get it done. But you're not going to get the full value of 5G. I say you've got to at least use two, preferably three, and you have a killer application in the making for you. That is very good advice. And Rob, moving across to be talking about what doesn't work, that kind of fear of failure can often be a little bit of paralysis for organisations. How has COVID and the pandemic generally shifted attitudes and the ability to fail and fail fast? Yeah, good question. I think if you step back from those individual experiences, one of the things that we've observed is you can't run a digital proof of concept with an analogue operating model. To Senpath's point, your, your fail rate will be very high and you're not really approaching it with the right parameters and definition of success. I think one of the lessons that organisations have learned, and it's a lesson learned in retrospect, is the importance of strategic planning. Now, we've been talking at Verizon with customers for the last two years about the investment decisions they make in technology today need to be made for a 5G future tomorrow. And what a lot of organisations have found is that tomorrow has arrived very suddenly. It's arrived very suddenly because of the economic turmoil, because of these changed trading conditions that we all had to operate under. And so hindsight is 2020. but many organisations, many senior leaders, the discussion we're having at the moment is, gee, if only, or I wish I had planned, or our strategy should have said this, and so it's almost that uh, reflection on missed opportunity and then learning that lesson and making sure that that gets built into what you plan for in the future. I spoke earlier about this concept of digital first decision making that's elevating to the board level for many organisations. And that in and of itself, that change in agenda for strategy and decision making at the board level is an important lesson for technology C-suite executives to observe and understand. Technology has been elevated to the board level prior to 2020, but it's all been around risk and exposure. Now it's about opportunity and investment. And that's a very different approach that the technology C-suite needs to bring to that discussion. There's a piece of research done by the Australian Institute of Company Directors that talks about that gap, the innovation gap, and maybe there's an increase in cyber literacy. But as you say, it's the kind of forward thinking innovations now that might have seen a step change this year. I guess hopefully we'll get another study to tell us. What we're talking about now, I guess, comes to the, the workforce, the skills mix, the sense of ambition, having the right people to be able to see around corners. Apart from the remote working and the workforce things, what do we need in our businesses to be able to really plan and have the ambition and vision to make these application of these technologies a reality? Look, I think one of the, in terms of skill sets, we are spending a lot of time collecting a lot of data, a lot of data about pretty much everything. It's almost like exhaust. You know, uh, we have so much exhaust is released by every device, every activity we do. There is a lot of value in taking that data and actually using it. Because look, data storage is very cheap now. So you can store a lot of data. It's at the right price point. There are a lot of models, whether it's AI or neural networks right now, that help you translate data into insight. But companies that use that data effectively to change the course of the river, bend the river, bend their operations, change the outcomes, ones that do very, very well right now. You know, I'll give you an interesting one, Domino's Pizza. I have two young kids. I have to admit, me and my wife use them more than we should for dinners at home. They have an app that basically tells you where your pizza is at any given time. 
killer app. Literally, it's a killer app. I think it's got 3.4 million reviews and its average rating on the App Store is five. So they haven't done anything magical. The pizza doesn't taste better. I think it actually tastes worse in my opinion. But they have been able to use data very, very effectively to solve business problems. Another one is just Uber, for example. Great one. You know, They didn't invent the taxi service. They didn't invent the phone. But they use data very effectively and added talent that could use data to change models. So back to talent, I think companies that can leverage data to change both their current business, but also new business models are going to be the one winners. And look, at Verizon, we try and do that a lot. You know, for example, you know, we're a large phone company, you call in. If we've already seen a problem with your router, the minute you call us, the first thing we'll ask you is, hey, are you having a problem with your router? Press one to reboot it. So how do you use data to enable solutions that actually benefit the customer? And I think that's interesting, Robert, and keen for your thoughts, because you know, in our work, we often see that the, the data scientists are often a completely different you know, type of person than the person that's really going to empathize with the customer and experience. So those two sides really need to work very effectively together. They do. I think beyond that, just looking at the point in time of where we are right now, the first challenge will be many technology organizations will be tasked with managing the recovery of their organization with far fewer skills than they had previously as technology organizations have had to scale back their resource base, in some cases up to 90%. I've spoken with large enterprise customers here in Australia that have furloughed or reduced their technology staff by 90%. Now, they're already facing into a future where they'll never get back to that full headcount that they had previously. So the resource mix and how they consume resources and skills will be very different. That's challenge number one. And then to Sampath's point, if my consumption model for resource and capability has changed, A, how do I source it? B, how do I manage it? And then C, how do I prioritize the skills that I require? And so Sampat mentioned data kind of as a nexus point. I think you know there's three legs to the stool. One is privacy, the other is trust, and the third is data. And when you give all of those a technology focus, then it really starts to bring into very real clarity the types of skills that you're going to be looking for. Cyber skills, we know there's been pent-up demand in cyber skills for many years in Australia, in fact, around the Asia-Pacific region, probably the globe, that will continue. Bringing data analysis out of the science, if you will, much closer to the customer experience and much closer to marketing and the CX suite uh, more broadly will be an important step as well. And then this concept of trust, which is understanding the complexity in the IT stack taking out that complexity, not only to create a cost benefit and an operating benefit, but to also reduce the risk and exposure around compliance and uh, the, you know, the fluidity of data and, and how you secure and manage that information. Those three concepts, more than anything else, should really inform and drive resourcing decisions for organisations, at least in the short to midterm, as we seek to rebuild the economy and rebuild some of the markets that have been most heavily impacted. I wanted to ask you both if we could take a look sort of inside Verizon for a moment, just as a, as a conclusion to this discussion. Verizon's not only had the same kind of workforce sort of, I guess, pressures that every other organisation, but you've also done that in an environment where there's been a huge demand for the network stability, but also from a cultural perspective, it's held up really well. If you look at Sampath, your global team, Rob, you have a view of the region. What has it been that's really helped you sort of lead not just the workforce, but the workforce at a time when the demands have been extraordinary? Yeah, to give you a small anecdote, his last five years' voice has been going down because most people use 
text and email and WhatsApp to communicate. Voice has been going down. In America, the single biggest voice day tends to be Mother's Day. People call their moms, they chat. It's kind of a busy day for us. Interestingly, after COVID, almost every day has been a Mother's Day in terms of voice usage. So just exponential increase in network, both on the voice network and the data network for us. A couple of things have helped us. One is just clarity of mission. We are very, very clear what our mission is. We want to keep the world connected. We want to build the best networks. We want to run the best networks. We want to operate the best networks. That single clarity of mission has helped our teams massively. They know what needs to happen to keep this. And part of that is just our approach to customers. We are here to serve customers or we are here to serve people who serve customers. So just the clarity of mission has helped a lot. Now, I will say that, look, we've been working remotely. Many of us have been working remotely since February of this year. You know, we are reaching close to 10 months, maybe nine months right now. Fatigue is setting in. Vacation times are down. Fatigue is setting in. So we are recalibrating a little bit you know, spending more time on mental health, talking about mental health, talking about uh, taking care of yourself. I'm actually actively encouraging people to take vacation. In fact, I ordered Rob to go and take some vacation, which he insists he doesn't want to do. So, you know, clarity of mission has helped, but we are in this for the long run. So we got to be sustainable, see what it takes to be in a sustainable. We can't be in a war mode forever. We have to evolve our mode so that we are in a peace mode, but at the same time, we are evolving. So I think there's more work to do. Look, the winter will be interesting. Winter for us in this side of the world here will be pretty interesting because people can't travel out anymore. People have to stay at homes. What does that do? So I'm looking forward to that. But look, we are ready and the network is doing fabulously well. The tempo and pace of business has never been faster. And we've seen a significant marked increase this year, which feels counterintuitive when you look at what's happening economically. And when you look at, uh, as Sam Path mentioned, everyone working from home, it sort of feels like it should slow down or feel like it's less busy, but it's actually the opposite. I think I would tell you, I've been with the company almost 20 years, and I would tell you that the first thing is the very solid cultural foundation, the culture and the way that we describe our mission and our purpose but also the way that we define ourselves as an organization has never been firmer and has never been stronger than it is right now. So I think that was a really important point coming into this year. One of the observations we found in the Asia-Pacific region is that we moved everyone to working remotely. We were impacting a lot of these what are called microcultures. So what happens within a specific team, a specific work group, a specific office is very different around the region. It's all anchored in our corporate culture and our corporate values, but the way they express that was very different. And the first thing we did when we started to work remotely was we almost, not force is the wrong word, but we almost tried to manufacture a way to sustain that engagement and that cultural alignment. And we found very quickly that that wasn't quite working. What we needed to do was we needed to allow those individual teams, those individual work groups, those individual offices to express the way that they wanted to come together in that microculture sense. And that's been a hugely important part of keeping the Asia-Pacific region connected, of keeping our employees engaged, feeling like they're still part of a broader team, they're still part of a business unit, which in Asia-Pac is difficult anyway. At the best of times, you know, 16 countries, a lot of distributed offices, it's difficult to give people a sense of joint belonging and ownership. But doing, again, what felt very counterintuitive, which was investing in and supporting these microcultures and the way that individual teams and offices wanted to come together and celebrate and create that connection, it's been a really important part of our success. 
that's a great place to wind the discussion up today. It's been um, certainly delightful for me and it's really been incredibly interesting. So Sampath and Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Corey. We hope you enjoyed this special Verizon Age of Trust podcast. For more, keep tuning in to Innovation Oz podcast or go to verizon.com.